Hey guys, last week we learned about uh, Tracy's surgery and obviously how we met and all that. Then we also learned at the end that we got a job offer to move to the Virgin Islands. This week's episode, you're going to hear about that move and our experiences on the island, plus some paranormal experiences that I had before we had left. Uh, actually, the, the paranormal experiences were spread out, but it, it was just a good time to put them in as we reminisced about leaving the house. That Honestly, Tracy and I had spent our whole marriage in at that point. So this episode uh, is not going to be as long as some of the past ones because there was only two chapters left, and they weren't long chapters of part two. And then we'll start part three next week. So enjoy. Chapter 18 Parting is such sweet sorrow. Moving to an island is not an easy task, and when we accepted the new opportunity, we didn't realize that we could not ship all of the contents of our two-story house to our new location. We gave away some of our furniture to our children and had a huge moving cell to get rid of as much as possible while making a little bit of money for the move. My new company gave me $6,000 for moving expenses. When considering the cost of travel, securing a new place to live, and getting a vehicle once there, that amount of money was not very much. Once the house was empty, we were hit with just how many memories that house actually held for us. This is the house that we spent six years together. We reminisced about all the holidays and birthdays celebrated here. Our grandchildren had been born while we lived here. This is where we met our future daughter-in-law, Kelly, and her beautiful daughter, Elena. Ninja, our dog, came into our lives while we were living here, and this was also where I had two paranormal experiences. The first experience was on Friday, February 27, 2009. The hour was early, around 2 a.m. Tracy and I were asleep in our bedroom when our TV turned on by itself. I assumed that the remote was probably in our bed and one of us had rolled over on it, turning on the television. After searching for a few seconds with no luck, and wanting desperately to get back to sleep, I got up and manually turned the television off. I noticed as I turned off the television that the remote control was sitting on the entertainment center right beside it. We could not have turned on the television by mistake. I was tired and I really did not care at this point, so I climbed back into bed and before I could pull the blanket back over top of me, the television blinked back on. I was now frustrated and mad at myself for not bringing the remote control back to bed with me. I seriously was not expecting this to happen again. I got up, again, and turned off the TV, and this time I brought the remote control back to bed with me. Surprisingly, I was not scared or worried that the television had turned itself on, and as I quickly sank back into sleep, the television blinked on again. Fumbling for the remote, I pressed down the power button. Again, the television came back to life, and this time Tracy woke up and she suggested I unplug the television. That seemed to fix the problem. The following afternoon, I received a phone call from my former regional manager, Monty. He asked if I'd heard the news about Dave. Dave was a larger-than-life person with whom I'd worked. We were close back in the mid-1990s. We had kept up with each other since, but rarely spoke. Dave was a big man close to 500 pounds. He was like a big teddy bear and was one of the most caring people that I had ever met. He and his wife had adopted two boys with disabilities. That was the kind of people that they were. 
It turns out that David passed away during the middle of the night from a heart attack. He was only 47 years old. I was extremely saddened by this news and immediately thought about the issues with our television. Was this Dave saying goodbye? I will always think that it was Dave. We never had an issue with that television turning itself on again, not even once. The next paranormal incident that I want to share is an extremely hard experience for me to discuss. This occurred on Friday, September 7th, 2012. Tracy and I were leaving early the next morning for a weekend trip to Nashville, Tennessee. Storms had moved into our area, and we were hoping that they would be gone by morning. We completed our packing and turned in around 10 p.m. so we could get a good night's rest. The sound of the rain pattern on the windows lulled us to sleep. Shortly after midnight, we were both abruptly awakened by the blasting of a DVD coming from the surround sound system in our family room which was right next to our bedroom. We rushed in to investigate. This was a very high-powered system and would send thunderous bass through our house when it was cranked up. We knew that we were the only ones in the house. I immediately went into the unit and turned it down, and then turned it off. I decided to turn it back on and take out the DVD just in case it came back on so it would not wake us again. The player would not power back up again. We were uneasy and could not think of a logical explanation for the system to have turned on by itself or why it would not turn on now, and eventually we finally went back to sleep. The next morning, we ventured to Nashville and checked into our hotel room. We spent the entire day seeing the sights and even participated in a ghost tour that evening. On Sunday, we decided to walk through the Opryland Hotel. This place is gorgeous and a must-see, even if you don't stay there. There is a boat ride on an indoor river inside the hotel and we decided to partake. As we waited, I glanced at my phone and noticed that I had a missed call from my best friend Rondell. I tried to return the call a few times but could not reach him. After 15 minutes or so, he returned my call. I will never forget this phone call for the rest of my life. Rondell told me that his brother, who was a great friend to me as well for over 25 years, had been killed in a car wreck. They had just found his car earlier in the day. He had driven off the road during the storms Friday night. Not really being in a mood to sightsee, we decided to cut our trip a little bit early. We left Nashville and made the three-hour trek back to Rondell's house to help comfort the family in their time of need. All we could think about the entire drive was that surround sound coming on on Friday night. I knew that this was Kevin trying to communicate with me. That surround sound system never did power up again. The interior was completely fried. I didn't mind that loss since it gave Kevin a way to send me one last message. Kevin Tuttle was a great guy and a great friend. He was married and had three children, Danielle, Matthew, and Allison. Those children meant everything to him. Kevin, Rondell, and their dad, Ron, were extremely close and already had to endure the death of their matriarch when Kevin and Rondell were both young. Sandra died in her 30s of a heart condition. Unfortunately, Kevin was the one who found her body when he arrived home from school that dreadful day. I always wondered how that affected him, but I never asked him. As everyone got older and started their own families, we did not see each other near as much. About six months before his death, Kevin and I had started talking and seeing each other much more often. Aside from my mother's death, Kevin was the only one that truly hurt me. 
I've always been one to accept that death is just a part of life, so most deaths have been easier to handle. This one hit hard, though. Our birthdays were just one day apart. His was August 21st, mine August 22nd. And our children, his daughter Danielle and my son Austin, had birthdays that were just a day apart, March 4th and March 5th. Saying goodbye permanently was much harder than moving away from family. Chapter 19. Living in Paradise Tracy and I arrived in St. Thomas at the end of January in 2014. That was Super Bowl weekend and we were establishing our new life in paradise. Our first day should have been a remarkable day, but it was not. We rented an apartment, sight unseen, because we were not able to take a trip to the island before moving. The apartment was found through Craigslist, and our understanding of this apartment was that it would be a furnished 400-square-foot studio for $700 a month. Well, that was not the reality. This apartment was barely 200 square feet. It had a king-size bed that took up half of this apartment. There was a heavily stained wing chair from the early 80s, and the stove did not work. There was also no kitchen table. Tracy sat down and immediately started crying. This was Thursday, and I was supposed to start work that following Monday. My immediate task was to find a vehicle. The only vehicle that we could afford was a custom-painted lowrider late-90s Chevy S10. Lowriders do not work well in St. Thomas because of the poor conditions of the roads. Honestly, I'm not going to write much about our time in St. Thomas. The island was beautiful, and overall my work experience was rather good. I worked with some amazing people, but we really did not enjoy our time in the place considered to be paradise. The way of life on the islands was very different, and we quickly learned that paradise is not really paradise if you do not have your friends and family there. We never felt comfortable, and we missed our families much more than we anticipated. My father had an emergency heart surgery within two weeks of us moving. In a small place like St. Thomas, there is no hopping on a plane with short notice. I had to settle for the updates via the phone. This was a real eye-opener for us. Tracy's parents were not in great health, so we worried about something happening to one of them with us being 2,000 miles away. I know that people deal with these issues all the time, but it was not for us. My job was great, but the only connection with the mainland that I had was Bill Milby, and four months after we moved to the island, he was terminated by the company. I was then offered his job. The CEO of Dial Run to Own was a very unscrupulous man in my opinion. He was always talking bad about employees to other employees. I felt that that was a shitty way to handle business, and I decided that I did not want to work there any longer. I had come to St. Thomas because of Bill, and now he was gone, and I had no reason to think that this company would show me any loyalty. On top of that, Tracy and I missed our family, and we hated our crummy apartment. So after five months on the island, we made the decision to move back home. I just needed to find a job first because we had no place to go and no money to buy furniture or plane tickets. That's when Bill came through yet again and hooked me up with Ken Schimpf. You may remember Ken's name from earlier in the book. He had offered me the job shortly after my divorce that I had accepted, but then decided to stay with my current company. Ken offered me a position in Lexington, Kentucky. Position started as a store manager for a failing store, and then I would become his regional manager. 
Ken was a private owner with three locations, two in the Cincinnati area and the store that I would be taking over in Lexington. He was willing to pay me $6,000 in moving expenses and my airfare. Even though I would be managing his store, my pay would start at regional manager salary. I gladly accepted the offer on a Wednesday. He wanted to meet with me that Monday and then start work on Wednesday, June 4th. We were on a plane home two days later. Leaving was bittersweet because there were some things that we loved about the island, mainly the people with whom I had worked. My employees were like family. One of them, Austin, was a retired New York City policeman. He was also a University of Louisville fan. The day that the Universities of Kentucky and Louisville played in the NCAA tournament, he wore a U of L shirt to work. I remember joking that I'd moved 2,000 miles from home and still could not escape these damned U of L fans. The run Kentucky had to the NCAA championship game was probably my best memory from living in St. Thomas. We were cheering our asses off in our apartment and no one else even cared about the games. And now, ironically enough, we would be living in the shadows of our beloved University of Kentucky.